I'm willing to guess if you were to ask the typical person, what single thing would solve all of your financial problems? Like, what would be the one thing that would just take care of all of it? What do you think the answer would be? More money. Uh, yeah, I, I heard that, but from pretty much everybody. That's it though, right? Would that just solve all of it? Like, if somebody after church came up to me and said, you know, Brian, I'm feeling a little generous today. I'm going to give you $100 million just to do you a salad. Which, by the way, if you would like to do that, I'll be standing right here after service if you want to come find me. I'm telling you, if I had $100 million, I don't think I'd have a lot of problems when it came to money. Like, I think I could make that work. I think most of us feel that way, too. Here's the interesting thing about just quantity of money, though. It's kind of fascinating. Some of you guys might have heard these stats before. 60% of NBA players go totally broke within five years of leaving the NBA. Completely bankrupt. 78% of NFL players will experience financial distress two years after retirement. Now, I have to give you some perspective on this because you're like, yeah, Brian, we get it. But these are all pretty well-known basketball players right here on the screen. And that's how much money they all made during their careers. Every single one of those guys went totally broke soon after leaving the NBA. Antoine Walker, $108 million. Now, I feel like I could have figured that out, you know, with a little bit of help. Now, you hear that. I know what some of you guys are thinking. You're going, well, yeah, Brian, those are athletes. We all know athletes. They're good at bouncing balls, but they're not good at, you know, checkbooks. They don't do that. Now, what's kind of fascinating, too, is 70% of anyone who wins the lottery will go totally broke within three to five years of winning the lottery. Now, again, I feel like if I won the lottery, I could find a way to stretch it and make it work. It's just fascinating. And what you really see here, because I know we all think we're the exception, and you might be, but truly, at the end of the day, it really doesn't come down so much to how much you make or how much you have. It's what you do with it. It's how you manage it. And last week, we started this series that we are simply calling Under New Management. And if you are just joining us, we made this case that truly we need to just scrap the whole thing when it comes to money management. Like, it's just not working. We need new management. Just like restaurants need new management, sometimes businesses do. Our personal finances need some new management. Because truly, school has failed us. We all left high school not learning anything about mortgage rates or anything like that. You're just trying to figure it out. College doesn't do it for us. Um, let's just be honest. The government has failed us in many ways when it comes to this. We have failed ourselves too, everybody. Let's just be honest. And sometimes we've made decisions and done things or other people have made decisions or done things that have totally put us in a position financially that's a real struggle. So we need to make a change. And it's worth asking, what does God actually have to say about financial management? Like, are there actually helpful principles? Because it seems like we've tried a lot of other things. Can he actually help us in this area? And again, I have to give a quick review of last week because these weeks kind of build on each other. Last week, we just set that foundational premise that at the end of the day, God is the owner. It's all his, our entire lives, which means it also includes our money. We are the managers. He generously entrusts us with his resources so we can steward them well for our good and for his glory. So we're accountable. But the real question is, how does God want us to manage this money? What does he actually want us to do with it? Like, what are the directives, God? If you're the boss and we're the managers, what are we supposed to do? And what I want us to see today is fundamentally, it is not primarily about how much you make or how much you have. Although I understand that can feel like the silver bullet. It is what you do with it. And so what 
does God want us to do with it? I'm going to tell you right now, everybody, this is probably going to be the most nuts and bolts, practical, straightforward sermon I have ever done since becoming the past year. So if you're like a super type A, I just want the plan, you're going to love this. You're just going to be so happy. And the other of you, you're, you're going to have to wait till next week, okay? That's just what you're going to have to do. So surf ESPN, do what you want to do, but I think this is going to be helpful. So we're going to go straight through it. What are some just key, straightforward financial principles from the Bible that we can actually learn from and apply to our lives? That's just want to be as helpful and as practical as we possibly can be today. That's what this whole series is about. How can we help? So first thing we see, this might surprise you, and I wanted to lead with this. Maximize your financial potential. Now, here's why I think this one might surprise us. Because even if you have read the Bible or you're kind of familiar with like the Christian worldview, we kind of have this assumption in the back of our minds, money's bad. Like, don't, don't we kind of feel that way? Like, isn't money the root of all evil? Have you heard that somewhere? That's actually not what it says, by the way. That's not it. It's the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil. But we think that. So we're like, yeah, money's kind of a bad thing. Like, if you're a good Christian, you don't have a lot of it, and you're not really proud of making it. You know, it's kind of embarrassing. But we have to flip this on its head, because that is not at all the biblical teaching. Now, the Bible condemns greed and hoarding and selfishness, but it actually has a much different message when it comes to building wealth. So, like, look at this. Proverbs 10.4. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Look at another one. Proverbs 22.29. Do you see someone skilled in their work? They will serve before kings. They will not serve before officials of low rank. Here's what's kind of interesting. There is not a single verse in the entire Bible that condemns somebody for building wealth as long as they're using the right means and motives. No condemnation for that. Never looks down on it. So there's kind of a framework that I've learned that has helped me a lot with thinking about just resources and wealth. And hopefully this helps us because there's actually categories of people when it comes to money. Maybe you'll place yourself in one of these. But the first one is ungodly rich people. The Scrooges of the world. These are all those billionaires that you read about in the news, right? That uh, apparently are doing all the evil things that drive us crazy. But... We have to be honest. This category of person does exist. There are people with massive amounts of money who could not care less about God. And there is no amount of money that could ever compensate for spiritual poverty. That's, that's the reality. And the Bible does give dire warnings about amassing wealth without any consideration of God. We have to own that. But there's actually, this category might surprise you. There is ungodly poor too. Now let's just own this, everybody. There is actually no moral virtue in being poor. Just like there's no moral virtue in being rich. You have to hear that. Sometimes we think, well, if you're poor, you automatically get like spiritual points. That kind of makes you like a little bit of a better person than all the rich people. And sometimes when you have less, you maybe feel like you're a little better than the person with more, even though it might be jealousy driving that. And can we have a moment of honesty here? Sometimes people are poor because of their own decisions, their own mistakes, their own sin in their life. That is just something we have to acknowledge. Being poor doesn't automatically get you spiritual points, but let's go on the other side. Let's talk about this. There are also, though, godly rich people. You can have a lot of money and still be a good person and still love God. There are plenty of people that have nice houses, drive nice cars, go on fancy trips, and are extremely godly. I know a lot of those people. They're amazingly generous. Their money doesn't have a hold on them, and they use it for amazing purposes. There are so many people in the Bible that fit in this category. Think of people like Joseph and Daniel. 
These were second-rank guys over the most powerful nations in the world. Do you think they drove a nice car? I'm telling you, that chariot had 22s on it. I'm just saying. Those guys were rolling. Abraham talks about all his staff, all the resources he had. He was a rich person. And he is somebody we're supposed to emulate when it comes to faith. Even Esther. I mean, this girl's the queen over the most powerful nation in the world. Ladies, do you think she had nice shoes? I'm telling you, Esther has some nice shoes, okay? Those sandals were great. Uh, Lydia, maybe you don't recognize that name, but she's a character in the New Testament. She was an independent business owner who funded Paul and a lot of his ministry. Like, she had resources. So there's godly rich people. They exist. Perfectly fine. And the last one may not surprise you with where we're going. Godly poor. Now, this is the situation for many people in the world. And sometimes because of where you live, when you live, certain events or challenges or even unforeseen circumstances in your life, there are many people who no fault by their own will go their entire life without having any real wealth in this world. It's just a reality. And again, you can be materially poor and very spiritually rich. And probably the greatest example of this would be Jesus himself. Plenty of people in the Bible who fit in this category. And what I'm trying to press at here, for all of us, there are a lot of things you can do to influence the rich-poor spectrum in your life. There are things you can do, but there's a lot of things out of your control, too. You can't guarantee anything in your life when it comes to your finances. You really can't. But you have 100% full control over your godliness, your relationship with God. And that is what he is primarily measuring in your life. So then what do I mean by maximizing your financial potential? What is the responsibility you have if you're trying to follow Jesus? Well, it's this. Whatever financial situation you find yourself in, whatever season of life, wherever God has placed you, you are responsible to make the most of it, to maximize every opportunity, to take advantage of the open doors that God is calling you through, and to really live a life that helps you build the wealth that he's entrusted. Now, here's where I have to stop, though, because some people mishear me on this, and they think what I'm saying is, okay, Brian, you say I'm supposed to try to get rich. Is that what you're saying? Because I really want to be a teacher, and I hate Excel sheets and computers, but I guess I got to work in tech because you're telling me I got to make a lot of money. Or some people say, well, Brian, I feel like I'm supposed to be in ministry, but now you're telling me I'm supposed to be an investment banker? Is that how this works? Here's the reality. There's nuance. It's not always the opportunities that offer the most money that God is calling you to. I'm actually helping another organization right now, a ministry, try to find a new executive director. And so we're going through the hiring process, looking at candidates, and there's this one candidate that I talked to on the phone last week. And he currently is a principal engineer at a massive pharmaceutical company. So he's applying for this ministry job. And I said, hey, man, I just don't want to waste your time and go through this whole process. So I don't normally do this, but I'm like, how much money do you make? Because I just need to know. Because we don't got six weeks to talk about this and get all excited and then this job is work. And he gave me the number. And I said, you just need to know, you will never make that much money working for this job. Not even close. You will never hit that number again if you take this job. And I actually was kind of worried because he's a good candidate. And I was like, okay, this is probably going to close the door. And he kind of had this pause. And he's like, you know, Brian, my wife and I have been praying about this for months and we feel like he's been preparing us to live with less. And so we've already been trying to position ourselves to be able to handle, to live on a salary at that level. And sometimes God will call you to a financial situation that is less than maybe what you're used to. And some of us in here, you feel called to be a stay-at-home mom or parent in some way, 
and that has hit your financial potential. Like you can't bring in as much money as you want, but you feel like called. That is the greater investment of your time and your energy in this season. So many of us have different situations to consider. This is what Proverbs 23, 4 says. Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be wise enough to know when to quit. Again, Bible's super practical sometimes. If building wealth comes at the cost of your family, your kids, your marriage, your other relationships, your own soul, you are over-maximizing. You're pushing way too hard. And maybe some of us in here, you have a spouse or somebody important in your life that is resentful towards you or the job you have or the hustle that you're doing. And you need to know that may be a sign that you are pushing too hard. And I understand there's seasons, maybe you're in a startup season, you're in a transition season, it happens. But it's something worth considering. Is this coming at the expense of more important things? So here's the principle. Whatever God has called you to, whatever opportunities you have, however much money that involves, work hard. Be the best employee you can possibly be. Make yourself indispensable. Bring some hustle muscle to the thing. Maybe open up a side hustle if you can. Whatever God is calling you to, make the absolute most of it. If you are a Christian, you have a responsibility to do that, to maximize the financial potential God's put in your life. There's actually another good principle, though, to pull from the Bible. I love this one. Create financial cushion. So if you missed last week, I shared some of the interesting stats right now at this current moment in our culture. The average American doesn't have $400 for an unexpected expense. It would financially cripple them. 30% of adults have $0 in savings. And over half of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. And we even said over half of people earning six figures are still living paycheck to paycheck. So sometimes you hear these principles, you're like, Brian, this is all great, but um, I don't have any money to manage. That's the problem. Okay, these principles are great, but I have negative money right now. And, and I understand that challenge. This is God's principle when it comes to building wealth. Proverbs 13, 11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle. But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Where are my spenders at in the room? Come on, who likes to spend money? Loud and proud. You like to buy some nice things. I see some good hands in there. Um, you're the people where you can't go to the gas station and just leave with gas, right? You've got multiple items. Um, you go to the grocery store for one item and you have two shopping carts by the time you walk out. Your kids' names are Target and Amazon. And you just, that's you. And we love you. We don't like being married to you, us other people, but we love you. Um, where are my savers at? Okay, come on. Where are my people? You reuse paper towels, okay? You reuse paper plates. Any paper plate recyclers in the room right here? Nicole and I use the same four paper plates over and over again. We won't do that to you if you come over, but we definitely do that during the rest of the week. You don't use your mattress to sleep. It's for stuffing money under. That's your thing. You're a saver. You're, you're my people. But... This is what I love about this verse because basically what God's saying is there is a temptation to want the quick fix when it comes to money, right? Come on, who wouldn't want to win the lottery? Who wouldn't want to just get that massive inheritance from the random uncle that you never talked to? You know, who wouldn't want that huge fat raise that you never saw coming and totally changes your life? Like, that's what we want. But there's actually another side of the spectrum too. Some of us, our temptation is to hoard. And we're like, I need as much money as I possibly can get because this is my security. This is the only way I'm going to make it. And so we just keep stuffing money and stuffing money and we don't have any faith in God. God says, hold on. 
there's, there's a healthy balance to this. You don't want to fall for the get-rich-quick schemes. You don't want to just keep trying to get that quick hit to fix everything. He says, if you will just commit to little by little, it will change your life. I had a friend in high school. Um, he, he, he struggled with his weight, and he kind of turned it into a joke. You know, he kind of tried to be like the funny fat guy. That's what he's trying to be. Um, but he hit a moment where he just got, like, exhausted by it. And he said, I, I'm going to make a change. And we went off to college, so I didn't see him for a whole year. And then we came back the next summer. And I actually didn't even recognize him when he came into the house that we were hanging out in. He had to, like, reintroduce himself because this guy was jacked. I mean, he could beat me up. And um, I had to ask him, I'm like, man, what did you do? Like, I literally don't even recognize you. And it was kind of funny, though, because he was like, you know, Brian, he said, it's the little things. He said, I just started walking three times a week. I just started drinking only water. And he's like, I just committed to a plan day by day. And he's like, you don't see it in a single day. But over time, the transformation really starts to happen. And just like it is with physical health is exactly how it works with financial health too. God says, little by little, you can build margin. You can start to put yourself in a place where you can handle those financial pinches and you can get a great, nice cushion in place so you can really honor God and live with some good financial security and even have that money last before you enter into eternity. So little by little, everybody, but you need a plan. This does not happen by accident. So what does little by little look like? These are just some good rule of thumbs that a lot of the experts would tell you. Maybe they're helpful to you. A lot of people talk about the 10-10-80 plan where they'd say, hey, give 10%, save 10%, and live on the 80% left over. And I think it's just a good rule of thumb to, to, to think about. But what I love about it is it has savings in there. It says, hey, you need a plan for savings. You need a plan for the cushion. You need to be putting money towards that. And maybe 10% is a good number for you. If you're starting later in life, you probably got to up that number. Maybe 10 is a stretch. And you just need to start with a certain amount. But every paycheck, there needs to be an amount that goes to savings so you can build the cushion up. But there's another piece to this. Create an emergency fund. Again, maybe this is not new terminology to some people. Maybe it is. But again, this is just the rule of thumb of you want three to six months of your expenses in cash, maybe in a checking account or whatever, ready for anything that can happen in your life. So you can weather those storms, the broken down car, the health crisis, the kid that has something coming up, getting laid off, your spouse buying a dog without asking for your permission. Can you all pray for me right now? I just, I know, I know this is not a confession, but just last week, Nicole and I, we have on the iPhones, you can check the location of the person. It has a little blue dot, so it's kind of fun. So Nicole's driving home from a commitment, and I'm like watching the dot with the kids. I'm like, hey, look it, there's mommy right there. She's coming home. And right down the street, you guys know Lark Ridge. It's a shopping center near the church, for those of you who don't know what it is. And instead of passing the shopping center to come home, we see the little blue dot just pull sideways. And I was like, huh, maybe she's going to Home Depot to buy a plant. She passes Home Depot. And immediately I turned the phone off because I'm like, these children cannot see where she's going because I know where this is going because she stopped right at PetSmart. And I texted that woman. I said, wife, don't you dare come home with an animal. Not even a fish. And uh, that would be an emergency expense for our family. I have not budgeted for a dog. I don't want another dog. But 
That's what this is for. You need some cushion for when your spouse apparently starts falling in love with puppies. So, emergency fund. Another piece to this. This is going to sound so basic. But again, we're just trying to get principles, practicals here. You need to start investing. Now, again, you're like, wow, Brian. <laughs> you think we're all seven here or something? I can't tell you how many couples I sit down with, whether it's premarital or even couples that have been married a while, and I say, hey, does your employer have a 401k? Do they match? And they have like this blank stare in their eyes. They're like, what's a 401k? And I'm like, you are 47 years old. How? I'll have another couple. I'll say, hey, you got a Roth IRA. That'd be a great thing. It's got some tax advantages. They say, who's Roth? And what does he want with my money? Like, so I understand there's different levels of financial literacy. I'm not poking fun, but I understand that sometimes these are tools. And again, those are just simple ones, but there's so much power to little by little with investing. Some of you guys know this term, compound interest. Just that simple principle that over time, money will actually start to grow exponentially as it's earning interest. Albert Einstein said this, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it earns it. He who doesn't pays it. So let me show you just how powerful this is. Because even those of you who are doing a good job with this, this will re-inspire you to stay committed to your plan. If you just took $10,000, put it in an account to invest in, and just for 30 years, I know that can seem like a long time, $200 a month, $200 a month, $200 a month over 30 years, by the end, you will have invested $82,000 of your own money. That's a lot of money. But again, little by little, you can do $200 a month probably. After that 30 years, you will have $650,000 for just putting $82,000 in. That green line is all the money that just sat there and earned interest for you doing nothing. That's magic right there. That's about as close to magic as you can get. Let me get some young people excited here because I want to help some young people in this room get excited. All right? Let's assume you get married. You want to start your life off. You want to have a nice retirement. You want to be good. What if all you did, you're both 30 years old, and you say, we're just going to max out our Roth IRAs. There's a limit, and you just do the amount it is now. They usually raise it. Just max out our Roth IRAs. During the duration of the next 35 years till 65 or whatever. You want to know how much money you'd have? After doing that, you would have $4 million. Just average returns in the stock market. I understand there's other dynamics, but you would be a multi, multi-millionaire just for doing a Roth IRA. I'm not even talking about other things. Some of you guys, I'm sure, are in real estate. You have other bonuses and things from work. The basics, little by little. God says you can build a nice cushion. So, it's that simple, everybody. It's so basic, but if you will just commit to it, it can absolutely change your life. So you got to start creating a cushion. you got to start building that up. But there's actually one other thing here that we see from God's Word. You need to live within your limits. I try to make that very obvious. Whose limits? Your limits. Now, I wanted to play this song in the room to see if everybody could guess it, but the tech team told me we would get a copyright infringement um, so apparently I can't do that while we're live feeding and play music in the room. So guess what? You get to hear me sing it instead. <laughs> don't clap. You're, trust me, you don't want to clap. I want to just see, though, if you guys know the rest of the lyrics to this song. All right? So it goes like this. I want it all. I want it all. I want it all. And I want it. Oh, yeah, you know that song. Does anybody know what it's from? Who did that song? 
Queen. It was actually Queen. Freddie Mercury and Queen. Now, you know what's funny about this song? It is the most used song in commercials by companies. So you think of uh, Dr. Pepper, T-Mobile, Grubhub, Twix, Verizon, Circuit City. Didn't work out well for them. The Olympics, Chase, and so many others. It's the most used music in commercials. You're wondering, why? Why would a company want those lyrics in their commercials? Because it's true. That's why. We want it all, right? Why wait? I want it now, and I want as much as I possibly get. It resonates with the desires of our hearts. And we have built an entire economy around this, buying stuff. Maybe you haven't heard this term before, planned obsolescence. Have you heard this term? So this is actually the principle where companies will make sure that their products don't last too long. So it breaks down and you have to buy a new one. So they do, they do this on purpose. The most famous story of this, when they saw this kind of starting to happen, was uh, it's called the Centennial Light. If you haven't heard of this, this is a light bulb that was turned on in 1901 and has been going continuously for the last 100 plus years. It has not burned out. So this is what's so fascinating. Over a hundred years ago, light bulb companies figured out how to make a forever bulb. They figured it out. But you know what they also figured out? That is a terrible business plan to have light bulbs that work so well. So they actually, there are multiple light bulb companies that had a conspiracy together to plan for the light bulbs not to last as long. It's this whole thing. And now this has just become a regular business practice. This is why your phone starts kind of fritzing after two years. For all the Apple users in the room, you know they're doing that to your phone. They got caught for doing it. Your appliances don't last as long. Your products are actually designed to break. So you will buy more. And now we have created a spending addiction because of this. Now God challenges this way of living. He's like, there's a much better way. Proverbs 21.20 says this, fools spend whatever they get. And last week, we talked about how the average American, data shown, spends 101% of their income. Last year, the U.S. government brought in $5.048 trillion. So we as a nation spent 128% of our income last year. Now, God says, that's what fools do. And what we are challenged with is you need to embrace and live by the financial limits God has placed on you. I don't know if everybody remembers um, when the lockdowns were going on during all the COVID insanity, a lot of people started doing stuff to their house. Did you notice that? People were doing patio updates and getting furniture and doing all these things. Well, we had a handful of people in our neighborhood who started finishing their basements. And, you know, it's kind of a nice little upgrade to a house. You know, you don't have the dank, nasty, cold basement. You got, like, carpet and walls in there. And so we're seeing our neighbors do this. And at that moment in time, Nicole and I had two college students and their dog in our basement and another woman just living in another room in our house. It was very cozy. And we were kind of like, you know what? Do we need to finish our basement? We got all these guys living down there. I mean, we feel like we should maybe do it for them, hook them up. They're not complaining, but, you know, they're 19. So um, we started talking about it. We're like, maybe we move some money around here. We can kind of make it work and do all the things. But Nicole and I, as we were talking through this process, we just had a moment where we said, hold on. Our neighbors' financial limits are not ours. And we have to embrace the season and the financial situation that we are living in. And for us, that led to a decision where we decided finishing our basement, at least at this point in time, is not for us. It's not the thing we're supposed to do. And so instead, we bought the college students 
four electrical outlets so they could plug their stuff in. That's what they got, all right? That was for our limits at the time. But it's hard. It's hard to live in the limits sometimes. It's really hard. Because when you peel back the layers, there's all this stuff kind of driving it sometimes. Sometimes it really is as simple as comparison. You know, you have people asking you questions like, oh, when are you going to finish your basement? You're like, probably never. Or people say, oh, where are you guys going for vacation this year? You know, and they're like, oh, we're going to hit all these other countries and stuff. And you're like, we're going to Branson, Missouri. That's a little too close to home. That might be a true story. You know, what car are you driving? When are you doing this? And what are you doing for your kids? And what school are they going to? And just after a while, you're kind of like, man, our limits just don't feel like they're allowing us to do all the things other people are doing. And it can kind of drive spending in your life. But honestly, you peel back some layers on your heart. Sometimes the spending thing is just driven by restlessness. You know, some people will spend to distract themselves from themselves. Because we can't handle the dissonance going on in our hearts, and we will use buying stuff as a way to ignore some of the spiritual noise going on in our lives so we don't have to confront it. Sometimes there's just an emptiness thing. You know, there's just this hole in your soul. And sometimes money and the things it can buy feels like the way to meet some of those deep desires in our heart. And it is interesting, because I'm sure many of us have this experience. When you do buy that new thing, it does kind of scratch the itch for a little bit. It does. It feels good. But then after a while, it kind of wears off. And you're like, well, maybe I need the nicer one, the bigger one, the fancier one. And you get stuck in this cycle. And you never quite feel satisfied. And the reason why is because there's no amount of money on this planet that could ever fill the gaping hole in our hearts. It just can't do it. We get challenged with a totally different perspective with money in the Bible. Paul is writing a letter to a young guy named Timothy at one point, and he's writing in the context of money. He's talking about finances here. He says this in 1 Timothy 6, starting verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, when Paul talks about godliness, he's talking about a real, genuine relationship with God that leads to transformation in your life. The genuine overflow of God's very presence in your life that changes and transforms you. But then he says it's not just the godliness, it's actually contentment too. And the way he's talking about it, he's talking about a sense of inner satisfaction that is totally independent of your internal circumstances or external circumstances. Not affected by any of that stuff. And know what's interesting? Paul says this is great gain. That's actually a financial term. He's saying, you got godliness and contentment in your life? You are rich. That is true wealth. That is what you really need. And you know what? The reasoning is kind of interesting. In the very next verse, Paul makes this argument. Here's what he says. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So Paul's like, you're going to leave with as much as you came with. And he's trying to point to the fact of how fleeting and temporary this life really is. And how tempted we are sometimes to cling to the stuff in this world and find our identity and our happiness in it. But Paul says, no, here's actually what it is. If you have the essentials, man, you can eat. You got some clothes. And you got God. Man, you are set. You're doing good. And from what I can tell... 
most of us are somewhat appropriately clothed in this room at this moment, just for you guys online wondering. And I know that we all have different situations and people struggle, but I'm, I'm willing to guess that a decent amount of us in here are probably not missing too many meals. And Paul says, man, you're doing pretty good if you've got God with that. But it doesn't always feel that way, does it? It doesn't always feel that way to me. Because it is tempting to find our value, our sense of contentment, our hope in the money we have, the things it can buy, the security it can create. But Paul presses, he says, do not fall into that trap. Your spiritual state is the true measure of your wealth. And so I must ask you today, are you content? Are you content? Do you have the inner satisfaction that is independent of what externally is going on around you? Do you feel that deep sense of just gratitude and fulfillment in your life? Do you have what Paul's talking about? Is there some restlessness stirring around? Do you feel just kind of a sense of emptiness or even frustration with your life sometimes? Is it possible that you are sometimes looking to money and the things it can buy to satisfy you in ways only God can? Is that possible? Why do you have so many pairs of shoes? Why are you surfing around on Zillow and Redfin looking at houses and you're not even looking for a house right now? Why are you taking on the new lease for the car you haven't, haven't even finished the last one? When you say, oh, it's only $100, $200 more, why? Why are you doing that? Why are you spending so much time just surfing Amazon, walking around stores? What's going on? Contentment has nothing to do with what you have and everything to do with who you have. And this is what Paul is trying to say. He's saying, if you have a genuine relationship with God that is transforming your life, that will lead to a sense of contentment and fulfillment that can handle any situation, that can really carry you through, and it will give you a joy that will allow you to embrace the financial limitations God has placed on you. You will happily embrace the situation that God has called you into and not try to live beyond it, trying to find happiness outside of it. Do you guys see how simple this stuff is? This is, this is very straightforward. This, this is not a complicated sermon. But the implementation is where we get tripped up. And so this is the call we have. If you are a follower of Jesus, God is saying, I'm trying to make this easy. If you will just do a few simple things and trust me with this, it can change your life. And I know, I said this last week, a sermon is not enough, everybody. I know this isn't enough. There's not enough helpful tools and practices. We could have talked about credit cards and budgeting and debt and all the things. A sermon is not enough. This is the launch pad, which is why last week we introduced all these extra resources. We want every person in our church to go through. So I talked about this book, the Simple Money Rich Life book, and how it's this incredible story of this couple that just experienced transformation in their lives as they started applying some of these principles, and they give practical tips that are so helpful, and we challenged every, we said, everybody in the church, wherever you're at, that book will help you. And right after the 9 a.m. service last week, they all sold out. So 
If you have not gotten your hands on that, jump on Amazon. Make the purchase. It'll be an incredible investment. I'm telling you, please make that a priority. But also, there's a course, too. We talked about true financial freedom. It's all online. It's all demand. It's six sessions. You can go at your own pace. And if you just followed some of the stuff in that course, it will completely set you on a new financial trajectory. It's that simple, everybody. And what was so cool, I told you guys how the owners of this organization we got connected with and the founder and owner of it made a video for our church. And he was just like, hey, Northern Hills, we want to hook you up. So just for our church, everybody, you're special. We have a special discount just from them. You go to that website, ctime.com slash Hills, and that it goes away next Sunday. It's gone forever. They're going to take it down. It's just done next Sunday. But this is really the heart of the matter, everybody. This is what we want for you. Proverbs 21.5. Good planning and hard work lead to prosperity. There's some planning that's going to be required. Some of this is going to be hard work. Some of us are in financial holes right now, and you're trying to climb out. And the promise we have from God is, if you will put in some of the work, if you will get on a plan, if you will just commit to the process, there will be a benefit. It is going to be worth it. It is going to pay off. There is going to be prosperity on the other side. And my prayer is not for everyone in our church just to get rich, because that may not be what God has for all of us. But what I do see God promising here is if we will commit to his principles and his practices, we will see his hand in our finances. We will see him provide. We will see him make a way. We will have a deep sense of contentment and joy. And we will have the more important thing. We will prosper in our souls. And you will really experience the presence and power of God in ways that you never even imagined. And it will come through living out his principles even in your finances. That's what we want for you, church. So press in. Take the course. Read the book. And I hope it will completely change your life. I got to close my sermon, but I can't even begin to tell you guys the stories I've already been hearing from people in our church. And it's not that God has just dropped a million dollars in their account and done a whole miracle. It's the peace that they're talking about. They're like, man, I finally feel like God is helping us. I just feel confidence now. And I'm like, that's what I want for every single person. I know that's what God has for us. And so next week, I cannot wait to finish this sermon, this series next week. Do not miss next Sunday. Okay, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring this whole thing to a nice, perfect ending. But I want to pray for us right now as we lean into what God has for us. Will you pray with me? Lord, I just thank you so much that your word sometimes is so helpful and practical, just straightforward, and that you care enough about us that you even want to get involved in our finances. You want us to experience your help and your strength and your power in this area of our lives. And I just pray, Lord, that we would do the hard work. We would make the plan so we could experience the benefits, Lord. Help us feel that sense of responsibility we have before you to take this seriously. But Lord, we know that our hope is not in money, how much or how little we have. And we just want to refocus our hearts right now and declare you are our hope, Jesus. You are the only one who saves you are the only hope for eternity. You are a true source of security and strength and contentment. And for any of us who are looking to money or other things, I pray right now that we would draw our hearts close to you, that you would come into our lives, that you would save us, Lord, from ourselves so we can experience what true godliness is, relationship with you. 
and the transformation that comes with it. So Lord, I pray through this series for true financial freedom in people's lives, for them to see you work and for them to truly experience the amazing contentment and joy of having you in this area of your life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. If you would like to learn more about Northern Hills, you can go to nhills.org. You can also follow us online on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram for more updates and events. We look forward to seeing you next week.